welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hello and welcome to High Energy Health. Every week, it's my joy to connect with you, the thousands of people who tune in and make High Energy Health part of their weekly routine. And I've been giving a lot of thought to the things I do well and not so well lately. A lot of things we figure out, we master parts of our lives, parts of our lives that maybe aren't going so smoothly, we figure out solutions for them, and we improve ourselves, the whole area of self-improvement and personal growth. And then there are parts of our lives we maybe don't think about as much. And I've been putting a spotlight on those little study parts of my life that maybe even on autopilot for years or even decades and looking at how I can tweak them, how I can bring consciousness, awareness to them and fullness. Like I used to accept as part of my routine, there are you know the parts of my busy day when I'm maybe functioning at maybe a 95 or 96% happiness level. And every once again, I catch myself and think, Dawson, why not dial it up to 100? (laughs) Why not be at 100 right now? It's like, what excuse do you have to not kick up those six points? Why be at 94, 96 rather than being at 100? And so I've been bringing consciousness all these little parts of my life when I find old patterns are running in the background. So I invite you to use the show that way. Listen intently. I urge you to take notes. You will find so much rich content in every episode with every guest. We've seen our listens just skyrocketing over the last couple of years as people are really making high energy health part of their weekly routine. So make it part of yours. I also want to mention we have some, not only some exciting guests coming up, we are now co-hosting with several amazing co-hosts and you will get to experience them. You will hear their perspective on different topics. And as you get to know them, you'll realize what a rich community we have here and how the transformational perspectives ring in really from many different points of view are incredibly enriching. So you'll enjoy the show. You'll also enjoy some of the insights that our our co-hosts bring. So make High Energy Health part of your regular week. Bookmark page if you're listening to it on in a virtual format on your phone. Make sure you pull that app to the very front of your screen. Make caring for yourself, make examining your life a priority. 2,000 years ago, Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And you and I have examined our lives. We've done a lot of personal growth work together. And now it's time to find those little spaces where we can do better and up-level our game. So I look forward to doing that with you and sharing those ideas and tips with you here on High Energy Health. My guest today is Bob Gardner. He's the author of the book, Built for Freedom, and the host of the podcast, Alive and Free. He uses a body-based approach to happiness, health, and well-being with tools like martial arts, breathwork, functional psychology, and deep tissue release. He specializes in helping people through patterns, patterns like pain, depression, 
anxiety, and addiction. So I'm so delighted to have you on the show, Bob. Good to have you here. Oh, it's an honor, Dawson. This is going to be a wild ride. <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> and when I read your information before the show, I was I was so touched when you said you had 18 years of struggling with addiction. And when you finally came to grips with it, you were on the verge of both divorce and suicide. So for many of us, it begins by hitting bottom that way, that we make that commitment to, to change. And how did it happen for you? It's sadly the case. Uh, that's what I see over and over again. We hit rock bottom. For me, it, the addictive behaviors, whether that was going to pornography, whether it was using psychedelics or other forms of escape, all of the things that I was doing, they started just because I was I discovered that, man, that felt way better than having to interact in the world where I felt awkward, where I felt like I wasn't good enough or I didn't belong. It wasn't like I had a massive traumatic childhood. And I actually thought that that was a problem with me. Because, you know, Gabor Mate and some of these other people that are discussing addiction, they're like, no, no, it's trauma. It all comes back to trauma. But I look at my childhood and my parents were great. And I still ended up that way, which made me feel worse. But really, it was I had tried all kinds of this. I had been through 12-step programs. I had been to and seen counselors. I had been to coaches. I had been through online programs and anonymous programs. And I had tried all kinds of things on my own and bought into the dialogue around it, that this is something that is wrong with you and that it's something that you will have to cope with and manage the rest of your life, which is the common narrative. And it wasn't until my wife looked at me and was like, I don't think I'm going to stay that I was scared enough of the prospect of having to live with myself and also be alone and no longer have my kids come in the front door and say, hey, daddy, and all that other stuff, that I finally had the courage to go challenge the prevailing wisdom and try and find a solution for myself. So it took that crisis of not only your wife questioning whether she wanted to stay, but then picturing a future without her, without that family, and then saying, it's this or this. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. And it was, I remember one time I was sitting in the office and my wife went to pick up the kids from school and I was having this inner struggle. Like I should go act out. I should go do, no one will know. I've, I've got time. I've got a window. And I had this momentary like vision of my life for, for the fall, ensuing 60, 70 years where I'd be a 90 year old who was still struggling every day. And I was like, that. I don't want to live that life. And so combined all together, these things made me say, well, let's challenge some things. Starting with, the history and nature of addiction, and then moving from there. What you say, too, about it isn't always trauma is so interesting, because you're right, with Gabo Mate, with Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, the best-selling medical book of the last decade, many other books were told to look for trauma, and yet many of us can develop those addictive patterns just because of the nature of our brains. We have structures like the nucleus accumbens, which yeah. is heavily influenced by dopamine and drives us to, to seek reward. And that's not just in traumatized peoples and everybody. So, you know, the monks and nuns, they have a nucleus accumbens and dopamine, and that's driving them to go seek reward. And so we find even in these spiritual groups like Shambhala Buddhism and the pedophile priest scandal in the Catholic Church, and not I mean, it's not just those two, it's any religion you look at has, has those people, many of whom weren't traumatized and yet are still just being eaten alive by their addictions. So that's a great point you make there. Yeah. And, and I think it's helpful because a lot of the people I deal with, 
I work with, I'd say probably a, a large portion of them have been through traumatic childhood abuse and bullying and things that really did affect their life. And there, it's such a, an amazing thing for them to be able to be free of them. But the ones, there's like a good solid 40% of them that just, they have nothing to blame and then they feel worse. And so they're seeking this sort of like reward thing, but they hate it, but they're trying to deal with the fact that their body is uncomfortable. Ultimately, when we boil it down to what's going on with addiction is that their body is in some way, shape or form uncomfortable. When the body enters a state of bliss, you know this from your own research, Dawson, when the body enters a state of bliss, it's not seeking anything outside of itself. It is sitting there going like, life is complete. I feel wonderful. The brain is doing all kinds of rewiring on a massive scale and the nobody is seeking anything. Nobody ever went to an addictive behavior because they were feeling wonderful. They only go when they're uncomfortable. And that was the key doorway in for me was to say, forget talking about trauma. Maybe you had some, maybe you didn't. But if we really look at what the brain is responding to the information coming at it from the body. And if the body is uncomfortable, then all the information of the outside world is being filtered through that discomfort. And if I can put the body into a state of ease, what happens? Does addiction go away? Turns out it does. That is a powerful insight that it's the body's discomfort and the body's lack of feeling resolution that's driving us to addiction. And I never thought of it that way before. But one of the things we I have several online courses where people are doing a lot of meditation and they're entering these, these states of oneness with the all it is, non-dualism. And what we find is that their wanting goes away. They just basically are completely content with however things are, however their body is, however their world is. They quit wanting a new car. They quit wanting, wanting a raised promotion to move to a different place. They're just completely content. It's not like they, they become passive and never do anything about the rest of their lives, but they become content at this at this fundamental level. I never thought of it that addiction was this body-based unease. But, but now that you mentioned it, I realized that, yeah, meditators aren't there at all. They're at the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah, they really. And, you know, I... I, what I tried to do was I was like, what if I first could I get to this place for myself? You know, can I get to the place where I wasn't having urges all the time, where I could drive down the road and see things that used to be triggers and my body was not triggered because it was feeling wonderful. And so I was like, okay, cool. Can I get to this place? But then the next question I had was, can I make that an instinct that I don't have to think about? Can I retrain my neurology to and my all of the nerves in my, my entire body to react and respond to the outside environment in a different way? And so the processes that I'm taking people through are, are using breathing, are using movement, are using practices and processes that I learned through all of my years of martial arts training and movement disciplines and body work to help the brain just get aware of the discomfort that the body is carrying unconsciously out of habit. If you look at trauma, essentially it is a learned response. It's the body responding to the brain's interpretation of reality in some way, shape, or form. And if that continues to go on over time, then the body develops a muscle memory for that type of discomfort. And pretty soon, it doesn't need the brain thinking about the experiences anymore. It can just hold that, and that's the way it goes through the world. And if you start to challenge the muscle memory, then the brain lets go. I've just seen it over and over again, where it relaxes its grip on its interpretation of how things went and what the future holds. And all of a sudden, a new possibility opens up and they just become, it's amazing. And then the cool thing is, is that you haven't fixed anything. All you've done is given the body another option of interpretation of reality that feels better. And so it naturally is like, well, this one always feels better. So I'd rather do that one. And it just goes that way. And you don't have to fix anything. You don't have, there's nothing wrong with you. 
you had a hundred percent success rate before you showed up at handling everything in life. And now you can have a hundred percent success rate again, but just it'll feel better. Yeah. That physical well-being is a real guide to general well-being. And what we find with people who are on a spiritual path, and when we look at the research into people who are entering these altered states, we find that their their physical symptoms dramatically reduce and their pain sensitivity goes way down. They report much lower levels of pain. But I want to ask you, so you're at that moment, that pivotal moment in your life. What's the first thing you did? The very first thing I did after like just freaking out for a second, because <laughs> that was the first thing I did, was I got to try stuff. And there were two things. One was physical. I mean, I had already been training martial arts and stuff for a while. So I think some of the skill sets that I was developing were already in embryo at that point in time. But the, physically, what I did was I sat on the roof every morning and every evening and watched the sunset. And I made that an appointment. I said, I need more light in my life because I was depressed. I was suicidal. I was like, everything was dark. I lived in Arizona too, so it's not like there wasn't plenty of sun, but I was like, I'm going to sit on the roof and I would watch the orb of the sun go and descend down below the horizon and I would just stare at it. And some days I was pissed off and yelling at it and other days I was calm and just watching things around me and then I just watched it over the course of a period of time and things began to settle. And in that interim, the very first thing I did besides that to just engage with the thought processes was I made a list because that was the idea that came, make a list. So I made a list of all these people with 92 names on this list. And I wrote a, a letter to all of them. And I wrote the letter and I just exploded everything else that was that would come out. If I was angry, sometimes I'd tear through the page. It was just a full expression in the letter. And then I read it out loud to myself. And that was the first time I felt compassion for my own being on all the things that I was carrying, because now I was a third party witnessing all the stuff that I had expressed. And then I went and burned all of those letters. You, you see burn letters is a pretty common thing. I mean, it's fairly prevalent around that people do various different types of it. And the way I did it was I wanted to engage all five senses so that my whole body got the sense of this nasty amorphous thing inside me now has taken physical shape in the form of a piece of paper that doesn't control me. And now I can learn from it. I can experience it. I can fully kind of see all the stuff I was carrying. I noticed patterns and whatnot. And then I, I can conquer it in a way and I can burn it and let it go and watch it release. And there was some other stuff that I needed to do then, but really sitting on the roof and doing that, those were the first things. And really quickly, like I had huge reprieve from all of the struggle for a long period of time because of those two things. So now you can drive down the road and not get triggered by the things you've triggered before. But just doing those two things initially made a dramatic reduction in your level of was that physical sense of compulsion that went down? It was because the physical sense of compulsion always came in moments for me when I was beating myself up. When I felt like I needed to be more productive, I was running a martial arts school at the time. And so like, you know, during the day when people are at work, I'm at home, but then I'm out at night teaching and training and people. But because I wasn't doing it at normal times, I would have this sense of, oh, I need, I don't have a regular job or, or, oh, I, I need to get more students or, oh man, I didn't do that right. So anytime I was beating myself up in those places, that's when the sort of like drive to look around and distract myself and then start to kind of engage in addictive behaviors came. That self-berating was what went down. That must be huge relief. And then did you read books? Did you get involved with personal growth programs? What was the next step for you? So the next step for me was like, why did that work? So I started questioning things and I started looking at the nature of addiction itself. And I, I, I looked around as much as I could. And I challenged the name, like what the word was. I'm like, what is an addiction? Like, is it a molecule that runs through the blood? Turns out it's not. 
Turns out there's never been found in any laboratory on the planet anywhere a molecule of addiction or depression or trauma or any of those or pain even like they're not molecules they're they're labels that we place on certain experiences and so when i dove into it and i was looking at other people and listening to their stories everybody's experiences were different then i looked at the history of addiction and i was like addiction was a theory it was a theory proposed by one of the founding fathers back in the day the, the earliest addicts in history were religious fanatics. They were considered addicti. They were considered the people that had given their lives over or said yes to dictum, meaning a saying and odd meaning toward or a yes, right? They had given their lives over to some other thing. So they were worshipers of these other deities. Those are the first addicts. <laughs> and then over time, it became like a verb, like you could addict to something, meaning you liked it a lot and you could be addicted to sugar plums and whatnot. And then at some point in time, in 1870, early in the 1870s, Leslie Keeley, he was a quack medicine doctor. He was an army doctor, whatever he had gotten out. He had a marketing phrase that you could never use today, which is addiction is a disease and I can cure it, right? Alcoholism is a disease and I can cure it. And so from that point in time, the idea of an addiction as a disease took hold. This is late 1800s. So this is not even an old idea. Late 1800s, somebody shows up and says, this is actually a disease. And he doesn't have anything to back it up. He was using gold and claims of gold and old alchemical texts and things like that to cure it in tinctures and whatnot. And then it picked up. And then for 50 years, then this started getting applied to opioids and other types of things. And then in the 1920s, Torrance and Light, two researchers, went to try and figure out, is this really a thing? And they couldn't find any evidence of any. They were like, these addicts, the only thing that's different between them and somebody who's like worked up before giving a public speech is that they kind of believe that they're addicts and that they can't live without it. Or And they got a lot of flack for it because by then it had already picked up and then the 12-step programs picked it up from then. So I was looking at this history going, hold on a second, this is like a myth. We believe in addiction, and that's the reason that it, we end up being behaving like addicts. And Stanton Peel has been working on this for a long time, calling it the addictionizing of America. The whole tobacco industry and discussing like that cigarettes can be addictive, that really kind of reinforced the idea. And so before long, you have this notion of addiction that is basically an urban legend. And treatment centers around the world, everybody that's reinforcing the idea, you have a better chance of recovering on your own outside of a treatment program than you do inside of one that is telling you that addiction is real, that you're an addict for life and whatnot. It was huge. So I was researching this and challenging every ounce of it, going, what is actually happening? And when I looked at it, in the moment, I was like, wow, what percentage of my day am I feeling tempted to do something? And I got really clear on it. It was like a tiny percent of my day. I poop more than I'm feeling these urges sometimes. And so I was like, wait a second. Am I an addict? What? Am I really? Is that really the case? And so as I was challenging this, at the same time, I was studying like Wim Hof's style of breathing and other types of breath work. And I had done a lot starting in the 1990s with different forms of breathing to produce different states, yogic stuff. And I just found a simple way of doing some basic vocalizations to improve vagal tone and do all this other stuff and kind of harmonize the nervous system. And I was doing some basic breathing and some Wim Hof style breathing, very limited, not a ton every day. And then I was just doing my basic martial arts stuff that I was doing with everybody else. And then one day I was sitting on the roof and the entirety of my body sort of dissolved into the environment in my experience. Obviously, it didn't like physically dissolve, but all of a sudden, like the, the trees had my heartbeat and like the air was going through me. And there was this utter sense of total expansiveness. 
And for the first time, happiness had arisen inside of me without me chasing it. It had just shown up. And I was like, oh, it comes from the inside. Oh, shoot. Great. And so like that started this whole like, okay, so I need to look at the body and what's going on. Where am I getting stuck? So then from there, that's when I looked at, okay, when I am feeling these urges, what's actually happening? And I found, well, I'm breathing a certain way. I'm standing a certain way. I'm moving a certain way. My posture is one way. My facial expressions are doing something. And if I adjust those, I actually end up adjusting the temptation or the urge or the feeling and all the other stuff. Powerful. Wow. Yeah. In the Indian traditions, that's called Laja Samadhi. And the Sufis call it the glimpse. And so that's when the sense of boundaryness, boundarylessness arises when you feel as though the boundaries between what you thought of as your encapsulated self and all of consciousness dissolve. And for a few moments, we feel one with everything. And virtually everyone has those experiences sometimes. And you're right, they're internal. They usually have some relationship to nature. So watching the sunset and walking on the beach and exposing yourself to natural cues will tend to produce it, but yeah, it's powerful to do that. And then realize that, hey, I didn't take anything. I didn't read anything. No one told me how to do this. It just arose within me. Such a powerful insight to realize that, wow, okay, that happened. And then, of course, the next big question is, how can I go there again? <laughs> yep. <laughs> As always. <laughs> uh, and I actually kind of kind of got addicted to that feeling, right? In a way, it became this chase for a period of time. Like, how can I go there again? How can I go there again? And it took me a while to realize that I was chasing altered states now as a solution to life. And so then I was like, but wait, every every state is an altered state. Every movement of a finger alters the entirety of my personal experience in some level. And so I think I would rather, I want to experience chopping vegetables with as much ecstasy as having a deep, you know, philosophical insight about the world. And that was what finally made me go, oh, okay, hold on. It's not that there is peak states and those are the only things that matter. Everything matters. And can I enjoy all of it and not just be in the peak state? Absolutely. Why not have that peak state permeate all of your life? We're going to go to a break right now. You're listening to High Energy Health. Please stay tuned. We'll be back after a few moments. And for more on Bob's work, go to his website, thefreedomspecialist.com. Thefreedomspecialist.com. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church, and I love sharing with you every week. And I'm so glad you're here and exposing your consciousness and your awareness to these inspirational and motivational ideas. If we fill our awareness with these kinds of ideas daily, weekly, it really shifts our lives. There's so much there that we can pay attention to that's going to pull us into a downward spiral. And it takes real focus to pick things, to choose things like high energy health that pop us into the upward spiral. But keep on doing it and you'll feel better. Keep on doing it repeatedly. You'll start to get used to feeling good and you'll want to be in that state every single day. So I'm so glad you're part of this community. Make sure you bookmark the site or the app that you're listening to High Energy Health on. Make it part of your 
every week's practice for keeping yourself on that upward spiral. My guest today is Bob Gardner, and for more about his work, go to his website, thefreedomspecialist.com, thefreedomspecialist.com. Bob, you've really emphasized body-based techniques, and a lot of the things you were doing, like watching the sunset and being one with nature, they really were putting you squarely in the body. And you are then realizing that happiness comes from the inside and is something that's that that can well up from within. It doesn't have to be found out there. And one thing you've worked with too is physical pain and people in pain and body-based techniques to relieve that. Go ahead and share what your approach is when it comes to physical pain. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff, the training I did was with some of the sort of Russian special forces, right? These are people that were trained to go in and assassinate folks and, you know, destroy and destabilize governments. But they have to be really, really functional in all kinds of different environments and all kinds of terrain. And some of the training that I had started to make me look at what this, what the nature of pain was. So I dove into some of the research around it, looked around, and it turns out that pain itself is not inherent in the tissues of the body. That even though we might say we're having nerve pain or we're having this, that, or the other, that really the tissues of the body themselves, if you were unconscious, they wouldn't be reacting. They would be cut or whatever else happened. But the pain experience is one that is produced when we're conscious and awake. So the common denominator is the conscious mind. And there's all kinds of cool experiments that people did where they could train a person to believe that a rubber hand was their hand and then they'd smash it and the person would experience pain and all this other stuff because it's our own mind that produces it. And so when I started looking at that, I started going, okay, cool. So the brain currently has an opinion about what's going on in the body. How do we change its opinion? And the best process that I knew was, well, what if we could confuse it or make it feel really good instead of feeling really bad? So things like at first with headaches, I would like tickle the top of my head and other people just so gently that you get those little goose pimples and stuff all down the neck and whatnot. So they have headache, but I would just do, and it doesn't work for every single headache, but like a lot of times, all of a sudden, they're just tickling their face and down the neck and down the arm. Their headache goes away because they're sitting there enjoying being in their body. And it's just a different stimulus that introduced into the equation, the brain has to go like, okay, wait, I was in pain. Now there's something new going on. What, what, what are we going to make of this? There was a lady who I met a number of years ago. Her name was Amber. She's in a couple of chapters of my book where I discuss pain in depth. And she had Lyme's disease and Hashimoto's and Epstein-Barr and like 30 other comorbidities. We're talking like leaky gut and inflamed and enlarged heart and all kinds of things going on inside of her system to the point where she had what she describes as razor blades going up and down her bones every moment of the day where she had to kind of crawl across the floor to, to take care of her kids day in and day out. She'd gotten on opioids an opioid addiction, didn't want to be labeled as that. So she had kind of stopped it herself, but had spent the previous year just in agonizing pain. And when I met her, it really, she, she had just given up on it going away. She was just going to endure. So she was talking to me about some other struggles that she had, emotionally dealing with trying to succeed in the world and in her business. And we started talking about things going on in her early life. And I saw, I was watching her and I saw this buildup of energy and tissue and like tension in her back just start to come up when she was talking about what was going on in her life. And so I find I had like kind of massaged it a little bit at first, but then it was so pronounced in the back in the, in the sort of like center of her back between her shoulder blades. And so I was like, Hey, can we, can I just try something here really quickly? <laughs> She's like, sure. I'm like, I'll breathe in. She breathed in. I can breathe out. And as she breathed out, I just 
one good thump with my fist, with the sort of flat of my fist, you know, like just cupping something right there in the center of her back. And she looked a little bit of surprise. And so we were going to do two more. And the third one was a pretty good solid one. And she turned around with this look of like, what's going on? I told her to breathe. She starts breathing. And then I had to leave shortly thereafter. And she texted me afterwards at like 3 a.m. And she she said, I have been in pain nonstop for seven years. It has been all over my body, but my body has been quiet. I've been sitting in this chair for three hours. My body has been utterly still and quiet. And I don't know what happened or why it happened or what's going on, but I want to learn more. Seven years of pain that I didn't even know about, but was clearly kind of masked in there. So what's, what's going on? You have things called nociceptors, which are basically little free little nerve endings slow moving that are hanging out in the areas of pain. So your nerve transmits to the brain, basically two bits of information. We fired at a certain level of intensity and we, and this is the location. It's a what and where. If it happens enough, then the brain has to make sense of that and decide it's painful or not, and then give you an experience of pain. Well, if it's going on long enough, all the other ones in the area decide, hey, look, there's a riot going on. Let's join. What are we rioting about? Down with the king? Sure. Down, you know? And so they just jump on. They don't know why. They don't really understand it, but they're going on. And if it goes on long enough, the pain becomes now nonspecific and it travels all over the body. And so the body's just rioting because the riot started and nobody stopped the riot. So what I ended up doing in that case was with those thumps on the back, giving her body a real enemy, something that was like, wait a second, that is painful. All the rest of this stuff, guys, stop what you're doing. We don't need to riot anymore. We just got invaded. You know, Pearl Harbor just got hit by something. We need to turn around and we need to attack. And just that momentary reset of her nervous system changed the whole thing. So in that case, sometimes percussion or working with the body to give the brain a whole different set of information to deal with gives it the brain a chance to reset and decide whether its old opinion of pain is worth maintaining. That is so interesting, and that is giving it an actual concrete focus, and it's interesting, too, that how many people do, when they start to get into pain, if they aren't able to shift themselves, then they do wind up with chronic pain and pain in multiple locations, and then doctors called of unknown etiology. We have no idea why this is the way it is. Yeah, it's powerful to know that mental focus can do that. Mindfulness does the same thing. Research shows that just becoming mindful of your pain is really powerful, which is the opposite of what people try and do. They have pain, they want to take a painkiller, get rid of their pain. But research shows that actually the opposite is what diminishes pain, is to actually tune in and really sit with the pain, sense the pain, be with the pain, rather than trying to push it out of our minds. So yeah, our consciousness is definitely playing a key role in pain, levels of pain, perception of pain, and then helping us shift away from pain. And then how have you applied that, that finding, that principle, more broadly with other people? So what, I, what I've done with other people with pain is if for those types of situations, often when I'm doing body work and stuff, we're helping the brain find its sort of blind spots of places that are impinged, nerves that are impinged, places that might be stuck. Just tension in the body will start to produce a low-level sense of discomfort that can eventually produce an enormous amount of pain. So body work is one level of things that has, that has helped a ton. But most of what I've done with people is stuff like I've, what I've done with my dad. He currently has stage four metastatic melanoma. He's had it. He's had stage three before and had an amp, like not an amputation, but surgery to remove the, some of the tumors and the skin graft and some other things. And now he's on a feeding tube and he's weighs, he's lost like 50, 60 pounds. And, and 
he's in a lot of pain. So when I first went up to him a couple months ago, they hadn't figured out enough pain medications to kill it. And of course, my father, military fighter pilot, had been exposed to who knows what and all of his tours of duty. And you know, it was very much a by the book. We get all the vaccines and stuff. And so definitely they're following the doctor's advice. But in the interim, what do we do about pain? And so I taught him what I teach everybody that comes to the retreats that we run, where we're really working with these physical processes. And that was basically, let me show you how to breathe. Let me show you how to move your body. And let me show you how to kind of use your voice in a way that produces on its own a host, a huge flood of endocannabinoids, BDNF, all of these wonderful feel-good chemicals that run through the system and just you turn on your own painkiller factor, which is beautiful because it doesn't diminish your consciousness. Like you get all of the benefit of painkillers without the impairment or the sense of loss of personality that often comes with the other ones. That's powerful. And just knowing that we have this pharmacopoeia in our bodies and our brains and by consciousness and awareness, we can turn it on, turn it off so we can literally do things with our awareness that will produce radical shifts in our bodies by generating enormous quantities sometimes of some of these pain reduction chemicals, like our body's own inherent endorphins are three times as effective, three times as potent as synthetic morphine and can really make a huge difference if we can unlock them in our brains ourselves. If you're listening to High Energy Health, we'll be right back after a break. Please stay tuned. And for more on Bob's work, go to his website, thefreedomspecialist.com. That's thefreedomspecialist.com. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back to Hi energy health. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're making high energy health part of your weekly routine. Just make listening to positive shows, positive media, music, people part of your your life. There's so much stuff you can tune into there that's less than positive and will not have a very good effect on your psyche. And there are also so many things you can listen to that are going to bring you up. And while we're all aware of and responsive to all the problems in the world, we want to make sure that we are really keeping our own minds, our hearts, our energy systems in a space where we can make an impact on them with our own positivity. So listen to high energy health, listen to things that support you having the best possible life, and you'll find lots of practical ideas here. For more on Bob's work, go to his website, thefreedomspecialist.com. Bob, I remember talking to man once at a 12-step group. I uh, was living at that time, many years ago before I got married, I was living with a, my housemate, ran a 12-step group. And I thought, I want to see what this is all about. I went to uh, the 12-step group. And I thought, you know, 12-step AA. I, I had some idea what it was all about. And I'm getting chills as I tell you this, because when I heard the stories of some of those people there, I realized I had no idea what it was all about until I, I heard the stories. Like one guy, he just went through all these phases of drinking alcohol and then crashing his car and then losing his job, getting another job, then his wife wanted to leave him, and then his wife leaving him, and then losing custody of his kids, then winding up homeless. I mean, all these huge red flags, he just kept drinking. It was like the kind of compulsion that I think a person who's not in that situation can hardly even imagine. I've become a much more 
I think, understanding and compassionate since attending that meeting maybe 25 years ago, 30 years ago. I'm just wondering how you apply this when you work with people who have those pulsions that, that just overwhelm their ability to say no. Yeah. So one of the first things I found out early on was that your blood pH could be an adequate marker of your ability to have conscious control over your life. And that was helpful for me because there are things that I can do physically that affect my blood pH that give me back conscious control. In other words, the more that my body comes to its like natural homeostasis, the more conscious control I could have. But things like anger, frustration, stress, pain even, they start to alter the whole body's level of acidity and alkalinity, all alter the organ functions, your posture alters organ functions, whether you're smiling or not, whether you're listening to Dawson's laugh or not. Come on. <laughs> oh, you're too kind. Thank you. <laughs> and so like all those things can alter your pH and the functioning, even at a basic intracellular level of your microRNA and all the other stuff that goes on. And so when I learned that, I was like, okay, cool. So what are some things I can do that start to challenge this? Stuff. There was a guy by the name of Aaron. He had his trip to addiction started with an injury. So he was on pain medications for an ankle injury, I believe it was. And the medications were getting more expensive and he wasn't sure he was going to be able to make it. And the pain was kind of going away. But by then he had become somewhat dependent upon them because he hadn't figured out how to sort out the rest of his life. Someone gives you a pain pill. They don't actually teach you how to live a life that doesn't produce pain. All they teach you how to do is take this and your body will shut up. And so he had learned to shut up his body, shut up his body. So his body started screaming louder and then they wouldn't give him those anymore. And a friend of his said, Hey, look, I've got some heroin. It's cheaper and it works just as good. And so then he switched over to heroin and then he got into this deep heroin addiction. Well, along the way, his children absorbed what was going on. They saw it. And one of his sons picked up a heroin addiction of his own and he was working. He almost got fired. And at one point in time, he came home, didn't go to work the next day. They caught him on the surveillance camera. He went in to some convenience store, went back out into his car, closed the car door, and they found him overdosed, dead later. This devastated the father. So he's on this, addicted to heroin in his own right, didn't feel strong enough to confront his own son. He was using pornography and other forms of addiction and addictive behaviors as well. I think he was drinking as well. He had been in and out of multiple rehabs. So that means he spent thousands and thousands of dollars to try and rehabilitate his life and nothing is working. And then his son commits suicide and he feels like it's his fault. And he, because he couldn't step up, he couldn't fix his own life. And so, so, so he's in massive amounts of grief that he can't handle. And so then he's going back to these drugs for more and more. He found my podcast and he started listening to what I was talking about with addiction. And he just started trying some basic things along those lines. And then he jumped into some of the online programs that I create. I'm teaching him basic things like when you wake up in the morning, do this, just wake up to this 15 minute routine as you're along. And it's like tense and relax the muscle and breathe like it's a Wim Hof style breathing. It's not anything that's not out there in the world. For, but I have them do it slightly different because I'm challenging a couple of things, but it's mostly like pretty heavy breathing for a couple of minutes. Then just enjoy that. And then I can have them get up and move in a way that produces a pleasantness in the body. Then I have them have a green smoothie. So I'm like trying to prime his day with something. And then he goes through the day and then he learns what I call emotional ninjutsu, which is just a way to, as soon as you notice that you're feeling down, some shifts, some things, I have him go to bed using a relaxation protocol, like nothing major. And then he learns how to start to disarm triggers in his mind. He comes to a retreat. I'm doing some of this deep tissue work 
And I get into these areas in his back and his shoulders where we carry a lot of our burdens. The things you should do, shoulder and should are spelled the same, but for a few extra letters on the end. So he's got this burden that he's carrying. Where do you carry a backpack? I'm starting to work through and he's grunting and because we hold on to our burdens. As much as we say we want to let them go, it's the comfort place. And so as it finally starts to open up and release, he just like gets up and his face has changed and he looks at me and he's in tears and then he sits on the side of the room for about an hour. Now, I didn't know about his son. I didn't know anything else that had happened. But he had been through multiple days of cleaning the body out, ice baths, things like that, that we run in a really condensed way so that we can do as much as possible without having to drag it out for a number of years. And he just, he came up to me later, he said, he told me all about his son. He told me how much guilt he felt and everything. He said, it is all gone. Like, I don't feel any of it. I just love my son. I'll always miss him. But I, I absolutely love my son. And I included him, his story in my book because while I was writing the book, he called me because he was like, look, I've been going around for now a long time, visiting all these different rehabs, sharing my story about how everything changed. And I just wanted to thank you for everything that's been gone on. And so he's been to speak at all these various rehab. Everything shifted for him, not because we sat him down and talked through his situation. Some, for sure, the mind is part of it. But more, his body had this so much discomfort that it didn't even know what comfort was, what ease was. And so as we just worked with simple routines to, to bring the body back into balance, all of a sudden the possibility to have conscious control over his experience and his choices showed up. His relationship with his wife just transformed really rapidly. He reconnected with his other children, his daughters and, and whatnot, who he had been distancing himself from because he didn't want to make them follow the same path. So his family life changed, his faith reignited, so many different things changed in his life because all we did was get his body in order. And now all of a sudden he had the ability to have conscious choice in his life over what he was doing. Absolutely. When we have both our body in order and our consciousness in order, we have the best of all possible worlds. If you're listening to High Energy Health, we're going to a break right now. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm so glad that you are nurturing yourself, nurturing your day by tuning in and being part of this wonderful celebration of body-based shift. For more on Bob's work, go to his website, thefreedomspecialist.com, thefreedomspecialist.com. Bob, so... People wanting to apply simple techniques in their lives, where do they start? What's the kind of routine you recommend? You mentioned early morning things, you mentioned late evening things. What are the ways to do that as well as interrupting any patterns we have during the day that are going to pull us down or pull us into old ways of being? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that it's really the best place to start. What I'm really focused on is if I can get people to, to go to bed a little bit better, and then wake up a little bit better than incrementally, we change and we create this ratio where if I'm producing just a little bit more ease in my life than this ease, then over time, I move in the direction that I need to. So for a daily routine, what I described earlier is really kind of the way it runs. You're tensing and relaxing the body with the breath a few times. 
And then I go into basically a Wim Hof style breath work, you know, heavy breathing where you breathe 100% in and then let go for about three minutes. Then I have them hold on empty and then hold on full and then relax and then do some really gentle movements. What I think is missing in most people's lives is, is the inter the pattern interrupts. Most of them can find something online. Most of the people listening can find anything online for a good ad adequate morning routine, whether it's the miracle morning or all of these other things that put them in a good space. It's when the crud hits the fan that most people run into trouble and they don't have something ready at hand. So I'd like to take through two different ways of doing things to help with anxious states or depressed states, if that works. That sound like a plan? Sounds good. Okay. So if you think of like a grid, and the crosshairs are the up and down axis is how much activation is in your your nervous system. And the horizontal axis is how much you like it <laughs> or don't like it. So really activated, but really you like it is like excitement. And really not activated, but really you hate it would be like catatonic, you know, and like, you know, lethargic and can't get out of bed. And then really high activated, but you hate it might be terror or a little less than that would be anxiety or nervousness. And so if you can think of where you're at on the grid, the place your body wants to be is smack dab in the middle. Because the more activated it is, the more background noise there is in the in your nervous system, the less it's able to interact with the world around it and feel at one with the world around it. So understanding that anxiety is an up and negative and depression is a down and negative. So what we're going to do is we're going to take five breaths. And I make them forceful personally because then I can hear it and it's activating more stuff. So I breathe in through the nose and I breathe out through the mouth and I do that five times. And you'll feel some tingles sometimes, you know, it'll really kind of amp up the system. Just five breaths is all you need. Then for anxiety, what I'll do is after you've done that, hold your breath on empty. The reason for holding the breath on empty is that empty seems to coincide with the parasympathetic nervous system and this sort of down regulation, bringing you back down from all that activation. You just hold as long as you can, then you relax. And then you do it again, you know, if you need to. For depression, you've done your five breaths, then those five breaths will activate you a little bit, <laughs> but then you hold on full. Holding on full seems to activate the sympathetic nervous system a little bit. And so it'll give you a little bit more energy. This is also useful if you're on a long car drive and you need to get some energy in your system. Park, get on the side of the road, go out, do five breaths, hold on full. Woo! Now you can drive a little bit longer. Or if you have a test late at night and you need to cram and study for it. So these two things, it's just five breaths and then either hold on empty or hold on full and then repeat. This is something you can do in the car. It's something you can do on a walk. It's some, no, everybody breathes. If somebody's like, what are you doing? It's just like, I'm just, I wasn't breathing for a bit and I needed to just get some energy in me real quick. Nobody's going to bat an eye. Is it the best thing to do in a board meeting? Probably not. <laughs> so maybe excuse yourself and go to the bathroom first. Unless everybody else is too. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I, I've literally had people who are school teachers and have their students do a, a, a prolonged version of this for like a minute or two before every class. And the students then, their pH and their bodies get balanced and they get re-energized. The teacher gets to do it multiple times a day and they feel wonderful throughout the day just because they're balancing their bodies and their, their blood pH and all kinds of other stuff with some simple breathing. And we're also resourcing ourselves and discovering we have the ability to shift our mood as well as our physical well-being. It's been such a delight to connect with you, Bob. Thank you so much for you, for your work, for your inspiration. I'm so glad you were a guest here and I look forward to inspiring many, many more people in the days and weeks and months to come. Thanks. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to High Energy Health and making it part of your day. 
I look forward to seeing you next week and making these practices part of your life and seeing just how happy and how healthy you can be. I'm your host, Dawson Church. Till next time, treat yourself fabulously. Thank you. 